to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. It wasn't that emotional. I mean, it hurt, but in the grand scheme of things, I was just happy to be alive. The doctor woke me after surgery and said, you're very lucky because your heart stopped twice. So I haven't cried once. And then she goes on down to the bottom after she explains some other things and says, all of this has taught me to really focus on what's important in life. I just think this, I mean, there are so many other stories in this magazine that are incredible. And I felt like that was kind of a good little nugget to set the stage for what I wanted to talk about and something that's been bubbling up in me for a bit. And that is perspective. And what does it take to see beyond our circumstances? How do we put our circumstances in view of a larger perspective? And how does that affect and define our relationship with God? So there's a mouthful. That's what we're going to do. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Second Corinthians. And while you do that, I'll talk a little more. Kind of get the scriptures going so that we don't have to pause when we get there. Don Williams, I met with him this week here. I am following up in his shoes. Don did a great job last week. Give him a big hand. Glad he's here. Um, and glad that Mike Willis is here from, from Washington, D.C. Look at him. Raise your hand right there. Look at that. All the way from D.C., man. Thanks for coming. Glad you can make it. Um, <laughs> Pete thought that was funny. Um, when Darren asked me to speak, it was kind of... It was kind of like I, I wondered, OK, you kind of look for things that are bubbling up in your life. What is it that what is it that resonates right now? And for me, the thing that's bubbling up is this circumstantial deal because I got laid off my job two months ago. So that kind of shakes the foundation a bit. It sort of brings me front and center to this idea of how do I see beyond the circumstances of the moment to the bigger picture of what God's doing, especially in light of the fact that I have no job, which might be the reason Darren also asked, because it's kind of like you have literally nothing else to do except prepare for something like this. So fine, whatever. And to be clear, I was laid off, not fired. It had nothing to do with my performance. And this might just be one big call for a job. If anyone needs a self-motivating young man to be a part of their job or their business, I also grew a beard to be more like Jesus. I don't know if any of this, there's some debate about how far down it should cascade down my neck. And I'm kind of right at the, at the line here. The bearded guy over there is giving me a weird look. All right. I'm trying, I'm trying to channel Jesus. The idea of putting circumstances in perspective. It's a resounding theme. Um, I find that I have this default setting. Here's my default setting. I attribute the good circumstances to God's favor. I attribute the bad circumstances to his disfavor or his punishment. This is something that almost runs in the background and I don't even necessarily think that I'm thinking it. It just kind of is. When things happen, that's how I react. At least that's my initial reaction if I don't give it a little more thought. This hit me with the job thing. It also hit me with another circumstance that, that came up recently, um, a couple months ago, we have a 16, 17 month old daughter. She's 17 months old tomorrow. How exciting. She's not in here. Is she, no, she would be screaming. She'd be screaming daddy because she loves, she loves me. Um, so 17 months old. So two months ago, she was about 15 months old and, um, it was actually my very first day after being laid off. I had gone on a quick trip and then I was back home. It was my first real day laid off. Here's a work day and I'm going to be home with the baby, daddy daycare, open for business. The lights on my wife goes to work and within three hours I called an ambulance. So it's like you're fired immediately, like the worst daddy daycare anyone can imagine. Um, 
ambulances are coming, babies are being rushed to the hospital. It was a legitimate scare. It turned out that um, basically our daughter uh, was almost non-responsive. She was extremely lethargic and she had had a dramatic dip in blood sugar and blah, 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 blah. I laugh about it and say it cavalierly now because everything worked out and it was fine. But we went in the ambulance, we get to the hospital and uh, they gave her a shot of glucagon and the sugars got up and she was back to her normal self in a very short period of time, but we were still there for observation for some time. So here we were in the pediatric unit and she's in her bed and she's kind of coming to, and we're frazzled and Tara actually beat the ambulance to the hospital from her job, which was amazing and terribly dangerous. Never do that. Um, that's actually the, the one piece of advice the guy in the ambulance said, you shouldn't drive fast to get here because you could be in another emergency. So guys take that nugget away uh, today. Anyhow, we're in the pediatric unit and uh, all of a sudden over the loudspeaker, they call for a code white. Now, anyone in the medical field may know, and my wife works at a hospital, she immediately knows, she said, oh man, code white's bad. That's a, there's a, a kid or a, a baby that is coding that is in respiratory failure or something. It's not good. I just happened to be walking out when that happened, and I went to grab a snack. Within a couple minutes, I was back, and within that period of time, the entire room had changed. I, um, I walked in the room to um, an emergency room full of doctors and uh, nurses and staff 40 or 50 people um, all honed in on one spot over here. Um, And I walked into this full room that was basically in complete silence, except for what I turned to see was the doctor who was calling the CPR on what was a three-month-old little boy who had been um, just found not breathing in his crib. It was terrible. Um, We went on into our room, and and so Tara and I are there. We're with our baby, and, and we're literally right beside where this is happening. And within 10 or 12 minutes... They called it, and the little boy died right there. And the parents just began wailing in that room. There were, there were what looked to be sort of salty EMTs that have seen everything that were wiping away tears. And the mom and dad are just wailing. And the mom is screaming, why? Why? And it was such an unbelievable moment to sort of be a party to. My wife and I are standing there. Uh, wiping away tears and we're suddenly audience members, uh, you know, observing the worst moment of their lives. The worst moment of their entire lives is happening right in front of us. And my immediate thought as I looked over at my baby that's now smiling at me and bouncing on the bed and, and laughing, my immediate thought was, thank you, God, that that's not us. Thank you for keeping us from that. Thank you that my baby is here smiling at me. And then I immediately just prayed for them. And then I felt checked right away about why I had that response, right? Of course, we all would have that response. Thank you that that, that I've avoided that. But then the implication of my thought is almost like it's almost as though I have this view of God that he gave me a little more love than them. Right. Like, oh, I came to church a few more times or I prayed a little more. So I was spared this pain that they were given. Did they get what they deserved? Did he love them less? Was there something inherently wrong with these people that they deserve this? And I think the answer to that is no. I think that's the wrong view of God. Circumstances can't be the primary way in which we know and understand who God is and what he is up to. So that's what I'd like to talk about as we dive in to 2 Corinthians. Let me pray real quick. Again, never enough prayer around here. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for being here with us. I just pray that you will give us a picture of who you are and what you are saying to us or that you are not saying to us through our circumstances. And I pray that somehow today we'll be able to frame, um, we'll be able to frame our lives in accordance with your perspective and your view of who we are. In your name, amen. Second uh, Corinthians verse, or chapter 11, verse 18, I believe is where we're going to start. 
Is that what that is? First rule of, of doing this, you should have the text in front of you too. Never just depend on that, uh, which I'm doing today. I'll give you a little background though. I, I've been sort of mulling over, in addition to growing my beard, I've actually been reading some stuff and I was, I was mulling over, um, some commentary from N.T. Wright, who last time I spoke many months ago at the garden, I described him as the sort of rock star theologian. I gave Don that same accolade last week. I'll give it to N.T. Wright again today. N.T. Wright is sort of this modern theology whiz at least according to many people. So I was reading and kind of getting some perspective about uh, the, the church in Corinth that Paul was writing to. So the first thing you should know in, in terms of setting up a little background is that this was a Roman colony. So Corinth or Corinth. I always tear, tear, say it out loud. Corinth. That's right. Okay. I, I do this wrong. It's Corinthians, but it's not Corinth. It's Corinth. Right. Okay. Let's get it right. Sorry, guys. Rabbit trails galore. Uh, Corinth was a Roman colony. They were steeped in Roman culture. They were really, really proud of their Roman culture. And that culture ended up ended up being a bit boastful and a bit proud. So there was this standard practice for public figures at the top of the social ladder to list and celebrate their achievements. I fought in a war. I won a medal. I held this office. I own this business. It was very self-gratifying and sort of self-worshipping. And that trend tended to work its way all the way down the social ladder so that people were eager to, eager to celebrate their own achievements in whatever sphere of life they worked in or lived in. It's very similar to how we live today. And by the way, uh, N.T. Wright is British, so he's not so steeped in American culture that he can't pull away from it. It just so happens that this is kind of the nature of people, right? When we're left to our own devices, we end up being very inward focused and very self-worshipping. So the leaders of the church were starting to sort of uh, take this tendency, take this culture into the church. Paul had been away, and some of the leaders that, ha- that had emerged in Paul's absence were leading people down this road. And N.T. Wright even puts it this way. I, I wrote down the quote, they wallowed in a culture of fame and success and showy rhetoric. That's how the church was sort of viewed. And this text that we're about to read is kind of a comic parody. It's almost sarcastic. It's almost like Paul is teasing and saying, okay, you, you apostles, you leaders that have risen up, if you want to boast about something that you've accomplished and how spiritual, spiritual you are, here's what I'll boast about. He even at some point in the scriptures before this caused them jeeringly super apostles as kind of a, a joke. Like, okay, you're super apostles. If anyone here is an apostle, it's me. And so he sort of, in a taunting way, makes this claim. So since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast about... I am speaking as a fool. I also dare. So he's kind of saying, whatever you boast about, okay, I'm a fool for doing this, but I also dare to boast about this. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. So I am more a servant of Christ. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Why didn't they just say 39? Uh, However many times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, as though it's the Wild West, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. So there's a ton of text. But in some ways, you can see here that Paul is making the case, if anyone here is an apostle of the Lord, I am, and here's what it looks like. It doesn't look like a checklist of the things that we would normally be proud of. It looks like a checklist of terrible things, of things that would show our weakness and show the ways that we failed possibly, or show the ways that we have not kind of got it together in a way that would be something to brag about, right? So Paul's turning it on his head. N.T. Wright writes, prison beatings, official floggings, stoning shipwrecks. In the ancient world, all these would mean not only that you were an unsavory character who most people rightly avoided, but that the gods must be angry with you as well. So even back then, we've got this belief about God, right? Bad circumstances equal some sort of punishment. But Paul flips the expectation of those types of circumstances, he wears them as a bit of a badge of honor. The next thing for N.T. Wright, and I've got, got him on the slides here because I'm reading a lot. Somehow the church in Corinth and the church in the world of today have to learn to stand normal cultural values on their head, to live the upside down life, or rather the right way up life of the true servants of the Messiah. This has to do with shifting our perspective, with considering our circumstances through a new lens. The next bit of text is second Corinthians 12 verses seven through 10. I'll start at therefore, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me three times. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's flipping the expectation. Our expectation of what it means to be under good circumstances and in God's favor is kind of one thing. But in reality, God's choosing to show himself through the things that are less desirable, through the things that we would normally view as things falling apart in our lives. N.T. Wright Writes, the point is that he prayed hard and long and talking about the thorn in his side. He prayed hard and long for God to take it away. And God said, no, that's the ultimate answer to the boasting of the Corinthian teachers. Now, at last, Paul is allowed, it seems, to reveal a direct word that he's received from God. But it isn't a word that will let him or anyone else become puffed up in their own self-importance. But instead, it is one of the most comforting, reassuring healing and steadying words of the Lord ever recorded. My grace is enough for you. My power comes to perfection in weakness. God's power and human power are not only not the same thing, but often the second, the human power has to be knocked out of the way altogether for the first, which is God's power to shine through as God desires. And as God intends, Paul here is undermining their view of God. 
their view would, 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 would say, if you were really praying, then that wouldn't have happened to you. If you were really praying and if you were really where God wanted you to be, then maybe that baby wouldn't have died. Maybe your job wouldn't have been lost. Maybe other things wouldn't have happened. I'd like to invite Kayla up, if I could. Let's give Kayla a big hand. Here she is. Big hand. Follow her online at Kayweezy. At Kayweezy on Twitter or at Kayweezy on Instagram. I don't know if it's both. You don't know. Okay. Is that, can I get that microphone real? Kayla is uh, in our community group. Kayla and Nate. Nate is the big drummer guy. One of, one of many. There he is. Really good. Nate Burkhart. Good drummer. And the guy was up there today. You're great too. Um, <laughs> this thing on. Yeah. So Kayla shared a really incredible story with our community group uh, a few months ago uh, about the things that, that her family went through. This was another thing that kind of popped on my radar as I was considering talking and this idea of circumstances and, and what it means when bad things happen and on and on down we go. But Kayla has a really powerful story and you can pick up wherever you want, but basically involving some things that happened with your dad. Well, I, my name is Kayla. Um, pretty much the background of my life is I come from a really incredible family. And uh, growing up, my dad was always somebody who loved people. He loved being around people. Um, happy, happy man. And um, over time, depression is something that just took over his life. It really just took our family by storm. And out of nowhere, my father, who was once this outgoing so much joy in his heart, man, um, covered our windows, no longer attended family functions, um, barely talked to us, always angry, and he was so sad. And about four years ago, the depression just became so much for him to handle. Um, He's back in Ohio with my family. I received a phone call from my mom, and she was crying, and she just said, Kayla, you need to come home. Your dad is crawling on the floor right now, and he's seeing you, and you're not there, and we don't know what to do. So I knew it was pretty bad. And um, next day, got on a plane, went home, and he didn't know I was there. Now, my dad and I have always had this incredible bond where we just get each other. And for some reason, at a point like this, I needed to be there, and um, I arrived in Ohio, and little did I know, my dad was already at a psychologist's office. Um, He was cursing. I've never heard my dad curse in his life. He was spitting. It was not my father. He just became this animal, in a way, in a sense. The depression just swept over him, and um, I walk into the room, and I have to convince my dad at that point to go to a medical hospital, or the authorities are going to take you away. And um, he swore off my mother. He swore off my sister. He didn't want anything to do with them. And at that point, it was just my dad and I. And I thought, oh, Lord, where are you? 
this is this isn't happening. I'm sorry. Um, this wasn't my dad anymore. And thankfully, I convinced him to let me take him to the hospital. It was the longest drive <laughs> ever. And um, I got him there. I checked him in. He took off his wedding ring. He signed over all of his powers attorney to me. He didn't want to be a part of our family anymore. It was just me and him. And um, we admitted him to the mental hospital. And uh, he continued to allow only me to visit him for about two weeks. Um, he didn't want to hear about my mom. He didn't want to hear about my sister. He, he said he was crazy, and that's all there was to it. He was a nut in the nut house. And um, through much prayer, I was just calling out, God, where are you? How can you do this? Where is my family? How, how could you just take it away? And I kind of just threw my hands up in the air and thought, this is it. This is it. My dad is never coming home. My family is done. And um, eventually, about a, almost a month of him being in the hospital, um, through much conversation and counseling, he let my mom come visit him. And then he let my sister. And through that, this whole healing process just grew and grew. And he came home. And fast forward months, like I said, this was about four years ago. Um, he is now the happiest man I have ever known in my life. He, this whole spread of depression and everything that he had gone through was just a fire for our family, but it has created the most loving and caring man that he was supposed to be. And um, at the point, looking back, when I thought, God, where are you? You have left us. He was actually there the entire time, like strengthening and twisting our family together to truly become who we are today. He, he's incredible. He's loving to my mother, my sister. He loves people. He ended up going and getting a job where he now transports um, people to their kidney dialysis appointments because he just wants to give and give and give and just surround himself with people. And it's incredible. have grown through the experience and seen what God was doing sort of as they pull back the perspective a bit from the individual circumstances. So God uses circumstances to illustrate who he is. Is it God's main priority to keep us from tragedy? And the answer is clearly no. He sent his son to a crucifixion. Paul went through trials. Kayla's family went through that. I lost my job. That's not that tragic. But, you know, things happen. It's not his main priority necessarily to keep us from tragedy, though I think many times we think maybe it is. We do believe, though, that as the verse says, that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. We can view that either as a shallow coping tool or we can acknowledge the reality, that reality, as a fundamental truth of God's character. It helps us reframe that he is at work even in the midst of circumstances that don't completely make sense or add up to what we think they should be. Um, this book is The Good and Beautiful God. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. We went through this with our community group, and I think some other people did this. It's a series of books by James Bryan Smith. It's uh, about falling in love with the God Jesus knows. 
Um, and he sort of tackles all kinds of the, he sort of sets it up as though there are many false narratives, false things that we believe about God, ways that we view God that are not, that don't line up with who he really is. So falling in love with the God that Jesus knows. Um, he particularly in this case in chapter two that I want to reference here is fighting against the punishing blessing God narrative, this idea that we're punished or we're blessed and the circumstances indicate that. Um, the backstory for him is that he uh, had a daughter that during the pregnancy was diagnosed with an illness and they didn't think she would even be born alive. She was. She lived two years. The illness was even more severe. And after two years, she died. And him and his wife were just left in this terrible place. Um, and through that experience, he talks about an encounter he had with a church leader that he respected to some degree. He sat down for lunch or something, and that church leader um, actually asked him to just get down to it. What sin did him or his wife have that caused this to happen? I mean, what an incredibly off-base view of who God is and what he does or doesn't do to us, right? And so that knocked uh, James Smith off his, you know, sort of balance a bit. And he then needed to look into and wanted to sort of battle for his perspective. And ultimately, as he writes in the book, he was reminded of John 9. Jesus encounters a man who was born blind. And Jesus is asked a question by his disciples. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. So the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that illnesses were caused by the sins of the parents or of the person who was suffering. And in some of the stuff that I read, even the, the idea that someone could possibly sin in the womb and would then be punished for it through some sort of in, you know, infirmity in real life or something. Um, this was Jesus's ushering into the kingdom. Oh, sorry. Back it up a little bit. Smith quotes another New Testament scholar in light of that, in terms of explaining Jesus's response to this idea that this man was blind because of his sin. He says, Jesus refused to accept either alter, either alternative suggested by the disciples question. He looked on the man's plight not as retribution for some offense committed either by his parents or himself, but as an opportunity to do God's work. Jesus did not consider the blindness as punishment or a matter of irrational chance. It was a challenge to manifest God's healing power in the man's life. So Jesus healed the blindness. And, you know, this was, in a sense, Jesus ushering in the kingdom in a new way. We now look in retrospect and realize that now that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins and all of God's wrath was poured out on him on our behalf. But Smith then goes in this book, he goes to the next level and in sort of understanding and consideration of circumstances and how we should live. What sets us apart? OK, fine. We can look at our circumstances, our bad ones and say, all right, God is at work in them. But what can we do to live in a lifestyle that supersedes the limitations of our circumstances? In a sense, what Paul was doing, Paul was living in a way on a mission with a perspective that superseded the circumstances of the moment. So. James uh, Smith in this book references the text, Matthew 5:45, where he makes his, he says, God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. It's this idea that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people and vice versa. And we can't make sense of it. And in some ways it seems unjust, but Smith suggests that we find the things that, as he puts it, that are peculiar to the good, the things that are peculiar to the good. He's referring to the blessings given only to those who strive to do good. The people who live in a way that is, is not limited or 
it's, it's superseded by the circumstances. So an example of this, my dad's a pastor of a church and he has been for many decades. And so his life has been marked by an out, outward pouring of investment in the lives of other people. He, he spends, has spent so much time, particularly with people in hospitals. It's his thing. He goes to the hospital. He meets people there in some of their worst moments. He engages and oftentimes when everyone else is gone, he turns out to be the one person who is giving himself to families and to people in their time of need or whatever. The result of that, obviously, after decades and decades of investment in in other people, is that he reaps the benefits of that. And that's peculiar to the good. It's peculiar to living a life that, as God calls us to, is about serving other people, is about loving other people first. And there are a million examples of that. Teachers, people who just in whatever capacity take on the call to live as God would have us live, investing in other people and finding the things that become peculiar about the good in our lives, despite circumstances or in spite of circumstances that may indicate who knows what in the other direction. On the other hand, things peculiar to the evil are clear in terms of what Smith was saying. He says, those who are selfish and spiteful and mean are intimately acquainted with guilt, loneliness, remorse, and self-hatred. They know what it feels like to have darkness surround and overtake them. But God promises that those who love and serve and are honest and faithful will know a kind of joy and a kind of peace that those who are evil never will. God promises that those who love and serve and are honest and faithful will know a kind of joy and a kind of peace that those who are evil never will. The band can come up as I kind of start to wind down. Um, Some of this taps into the points that Bill brilliantly made a couple weeks ago talking about emotions and this idea of, of our living fully alive and and the elements of our soul, the emotions being part of that, and an understanding of, uh, you know, calibrating or coupling our emotions with love, which is the primary essence of God's character. The results are characteristics that are peculiar to the circumstances in that case as well. So when we have fear, as Bill said, coupled with an understanding of God's love and, and who we are in him, it creates courage. And so there's this idea that as we calibrate our lives to the love of God, that main characteristic of who God is, that there is a deeper understanding and kind of a bedrock of understanding that, that we become more whole people. We are people with balance who can face the challenges of life with a sense of stability and a sense of hope. And to be clear, I'm not talking about some sort of thin a trite self-help statement to will yourself to never experience pain. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what, what the Bible is talking about. That's not what Paul went through. It's expected that we'll feel pain and that we'll grieve and that we'll question what's going on. Things aren't always clear. But I'm talking about finding our footing as Paul did, as Kayla's family did, with a sense of purpose and a sense of perspective that far outreaches the circumstances of the exact moment that we're in with a clear understanding of God's character. God is more concerned about a relationship with us, teaching us things through circumstances, than he is concerned in magically removing us from reality. I'll say it again. God's more concerned about a relationship with us, about teaching us things through circumstances, than he is concerned in magically removing us from reality. The main question for us is how will we be willing, how will you be willing to frame your circumstances within the bigger picture of your life? To learn to make your priorities and values align with the priorities and values of God based on who scripture reveals him to be. How do we put our circumstances under the authority of who God says we are first? 
what truths God has declared about us based on what Jesus did for us? How do we put those things in perspective? Or will we be willing, I guess, to put those things in perspective and in the proper alignment where they have the right kind of authority? They aren't the ultimate authority. They fall under what God says about us more broadly. I think there are people here who need to be freed from the oppressive, heavy uncertainty about where they stand with God based on their circumstances. I think there are people who are living under a false narrative about God's love. It's not merit and punishment based. God's love, it turns out, is freely given. And it is deeper and more vast than we can even imagine. I often impose my version of what it will look like for particular circumstances to get better so I can move forward. And that version may not match at all what God is trying to do. And I can miss it if I don't align with his heart in those things. I'll read that again. I often impose my own version of what it will look like for particular circumstances to get better so that I can move forward. And that version may not match what God is trying to do. And I can miss it if I don't align with his heart in those things. I can't begin to understand the intensity of some of the circumstances that people in this room are going through. And I definitely don't pretend to know what it means to experience deep, dark tragedy like that that we observed in that emergency room that day. But I do believe that there is more to the story for you, wherever you are in that. And so as the band plays, um, this is a place of prayer and a place of response. And the prayer team will be here. And hopefully, if you're in a position where you need to dig deeper and kind of find some bearings, you'll do that in the next few minutes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.